Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. Today, we've got all three of us here, so it's great to be back in the room with, with my friends. Um, so how are you doing, Nathan? Uh, you know, I'm okay, although I have some complaints, but we'll get to that. <laughs> I, uh, we will absolutely get to that in today's episode, but nice to hear your voice again. And Johanna, how are you? Yeah, same, surviving. Um, I, think, I think as uh, professors, we're all sort of, it's like day by day. And I imagine uh, Nathan with a child, right? People with children, it's, it's hour by hour, probably even more so. Yeah, I had my first in-class, face-to-face class of, of the Omicron era. Um, and it was in a small room, 25 um, students. And like, it felt great. I tweeted about mm-hmm. this. It felt great to be in the class. Like, it does. Mm-hmm. I, I feel mm-hmm. like that's where I do my best work. Um, but... I also, this lingering, just like, I feel like this is absolutely an unsafe um, environment. Um, so solidarity to everyone who's out there um, teaching in, in face-to-face in these conditions. And I think we'll get to some of these things. In, well, no, in like, let's get to it right now. Because, I mean, yeah. the bottom line is that what we have seen occur, um, and this is, this is from the top down. This is, this, is the U, this is U.S. policy. I mean, it was, you know, I, I had the chance to go back to Canada for a couple of weeks um, over the holidays, uh, which was, you know, re- refreshing. It was lovely to see family again for the first time in two years. Um, and it was lovely to be in a place that at least acknowledged the existence of a pandemic. Um, now, I'm not trying to, and Derek, you may, you may have plenty to push back on about even that sort of... Um, favorable framing given your yeah kind i think of that's a little bit favorable yeah in that context but i mean honestly the contrast though the contrast mm-hmm. you know you enter canada um and it's like you better have your pcr test results here's an additional surveillance test surveillance test you have to take you better be all vaccinated let's see the proof of vaccination etc the guard is where the border guard is wearing a mask like it's like feels like what you might expect in the context of a pandemic. Like mm-hmm. we're taking this seriously. Um, and like travel is something that only, you know, should be done under very cautious circumstances. Coming back to the United States, they didn't want to see the vax cards. Yeah. They didn't want to see a test. No. The, the no. bloody guard didn't even have a mask on his face. <sighs> <laughs> this was on January 2nd or January 1st, January 2nd. Like, um, like the height of this. Like literally, literally they were just like, yeah. fuck it. No, yeah. there's no pandemic here. Um, yeah. and, and that's, that's what the experience of day-to-day life is in the United mm-hmm. States for, for those listeners who are not here. Um, and I, I, I got to say, like, it's, it is so galling. 3,600 people died in the United States yesterday, okay, yeah. of COVID. Yeah. And yet, you know, at an institution like mine, um, we are operating, I mean, we have protocols in place, yes. Um, some are championing those protocols as among the best in the world. But uh, the fact is, students have COVID right now. Like, yeah. most of mm-hmm. them do. Yeah. yeah, That's the reality on our campus. And no one is talking about it on yeah. our campus. We are in person. We are acting like it's business as usual. We are teaching in 350 square foot rooms packed yeah. with students. Mm-hmm. The windows are locked. The ventilation hasn't been changed. And we're just, we're just going on like nothing's happening. Yeah. yeah, I mean, a lot of this, a lot of 
this normalization of COVID, uh, if you will, is is starting to percolate everywhere, right? It's not, mm-hmm. you, you pointed out some differences in Canada. Absolutely, Canada has been dealing with this better. And I live in Ontario. We're just coming out, like two days ago, coming out of uh, another lockdown. So, so obviously, there are differences there. But now we're entering this stage where everyone is kind of, the, the narrative is shifting to this like weird idea of uh, endemicity as if it's like, as if we all are infectious disease experts now and we know what endemic means and uh, all of these things are, ha- and now we're starting to see the um, diffusion of discourse from the United States and places like the UK to here. And now we're seeing like everyone just accept the risk, just accept these things. Like I don't mm-hmm. want... I I like running, for instance. I like to run outside on a treadmill. I like to prepare for marathons. And I don't want my heart to be enlarged and face mm-hmm. myocarditis if mm-hmm. I I do not want to be exposed to this. Mm-hmm. But everyone is over uh, this pandemic, and I think it tells it tells us a lot about how we're normalizing death. You're completely right. In in Ontario, there were like sixty five. Uh, 70 people basically who are dying every single day that's the most in the pan in the entire pandemic so what has changed in the last two years like we were we were all talking about deaths in march of 2020 we were talking about deaths in december of 2021 but suddenly like we're okay with this level of death and in my local region there's a 25 percent chance that someone in a group of 25 has COVID. So any classroom with 25 or more students, there's a 25% chance that someone is infected with COVID in that room. How is that okay to send anyone in? And I think the lesson here, or like what we're talking about, is just the fact that we're all just normalizing this like death. We're all now part of this death cult that we have, that we've constantly talked about in the US context. So yeah, there's a reason why a couple, I don't know when I did this, but my location is like pro-death USA um, on Twitter in my bio. Because, I mean, obviously that's not my stance, but like clearly that's that's our capitalist orientation and the pandemic has just made that all the more real. Yeah, yeah and the Biden administration is treating this as like they're completely neoliberalized to the extent that it's like, I mean, and this is in keeping with decades of public health policy. So, I mean, there's a natural, natural transition here. But at the end of the day, it's like, you now have the tools. You have the instruments at your disposal to protect yourself from this mm-hmm. pandemic. Wear a mask yeah. if you choose. Vaccinate if you choose. If you choose. Test yeah. if you choose. It's up to you, right? It's up to mm-hmm. you if you want to keep yourself safe or not. It's up to your risk tolerance. It's all about risk mm-hmm. management now. Yeah. But I mean, like, that's not how a pandemic works. You don't make those individual choices. We're connected to one another inherently. I mean, we all know this if we're thinking at all seriously about it, but like the, the veneer of any kind of meaningful public health policy, it's just gone. It's just consumer choice now. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's pretty sick. I mean, like the students are not wearing their masks in dorms and like everyone has it. Yeah. You know who doesn't have, you don't know who doesn't have COVID among the students on our campuses? The ones who got COVID during the holidays. Yeah. That's yeah. it. Yeah. Basically, the plan is to let it rip through the entire campus population. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's the plan. Profs, you can put on some masks if you want, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, students get maybe one mask per person that they're given a, a, a higher quality mask. That's it. Let it rip. 
Yeah. And as you pointed out, Derek, like endemicity, right? We're, yeah. we're going to let it rip and we'll get every yeah. variant you can possibly imagine. Mm. We're just going to evolve the hell out of this disease and just see what we can accomplish. Maybe we can, in fact, destroy the human race. Maybe. Maybe yeah. we'll pull it off. And there's this growing... So, so this is a great segue into one of the things we, I want to talk about today. And, and there's this growing anti-vax movement. And I do think it's growing now. Um, mm -hmm. like growing, maybe it's reached its sort of climax in the United States, or maybe it's just always sort of been there. But as we are talking today on February, what, 3rd, there is a, what's called a freedom convoy in, in the streets of, of downtown Ottawa, Canada, the capital of Canada. And in other places, there are convoys and, and blockades in Alberta, and there's talk of Quebec City and Toronto. And these folks are explicitly anti-vax, explicitly anti-vaccine uh, anti mandates, anti-mask mandates, uh, and are aligned with some of the most extreme and right-wing groups and horrible takes um, and horrible, horrible people. Um, and those that that in Canada, this is the first time in a couple years we're seeing that extent of this group. To bring it back to the sports world, I think like we're there's a lot of discourse around Kyrie Irving um, and Aaron Rodgers, um, particularly uh, the latter, in terms of anti-vax positions. So I wanted to get your take, Nathan, on what you make of these anti-vax positions and what we're seeing in sport. Just that that entire thing that we're seeing with Rodgers and Kyrie Irving and others. Yeah. Um, no, I appreciate that. I mean, a couple parts to this one, most superficially, like we just have to note that the constant platforming, especially of Aaron Rodgers on some of the biggest outlets in the sports media complex, you know, is, is, is just such, um, a grift ultimately. Right. I mean, like these. Networks like ESPN running profiles where they just let Aaron Rodgers say whatever he wants and then be the consequences to health and well-being in this society, given the, the stature that he has and his influence and popularity. Um, you just like let him talk for 30 minutes and then basically publish verbatim what he has to say. Uh, it, it's, it's appalling, and it, but it gets clicks. So we know why it's happening. It's a, it's a great mm -hmm. strategy when it comes to like commodifying the news. I mean, yeah. there's no question that it sells, and that's why they're doing it. Um, and I, I just think we, we really have to hold them accountable. Uh, if you platform those kind of views mm -hmm. on a site like ESPN, um, you're mainstreaming them and you're, you're treating them as legitimate. Um, and so as you were talking about, Derek, like this growing movement, you know, this, this is a contributing factor. And that's one thing yeah. we have to acknowledge. And those who are doing that platforming are fundamentally complicit in that, whether or not they agree with it, whether or not they agree with Aaron Rodgers, um, they're, they're part of the same project by platforming. it. That's one thing. But also... Um, I think you know, like a, that, that's a fairly straightforward. I don't think that's surprising to anyone to hear that. Um, a more nuanced reading of it, I think, was, which I've been trying to kind of grapple with a little bit, uh, and Noah Cohen inspired this. Um, he, he was asking me about it the other day, and, and we had a little exchange. So, you know, he gets a lot of credit for, for this. But, um, you know, in my work, historically, I've been trying to think about the ways in which, um, you know, through the exploitative and alienating conditions of athletic work, right? Athletes suffer intense physical and emotional consequences. And those consequences are sort of built into the work they're doing, um, what they're producing for fans in terms of meaning, um, 
that's all part of the sort of process of athletic work. Um, and, you know, clearly that has really profound damaging consequences for athletes. And I think that we are in a moment where athletes have increasingly in a many different sites come to recognize that we've seen movements um, in like tennis, especially around mental health, right? Naomi Osaka being on the front of that. Um, and we've seen uh, movements in, in leagues like the NBA, quiet Leonard and others who have sort of tried to prioritize the, the, the management of their health by not participating in as many games. Uh, and they've had an impact in both of those sites. I think that they've changed popular discourse to a certain extent around these issues. Uh, and that's all to the good. But at the same time, this is happening alongside a pandemic. And at the same time, we also have to acknowledge that the structural power dynamics in sport have not fundamentally changed. You know, like a Kyrie Irving, or sorry, a Kawhi Leonard has... Um, more power than a lot of athletes uh, because of the number of players on a basketball team uh, and so forth. Like if he wants to withhold his labor, it, it, it really impacts the team's ability. They can't just replace yeah. him. And so, you know, he can leverage that. And to a certain extent, Naomi Osaka can leverage that because, you know, the WTA needs her, needs her celebrity, needs her excellence to sell itself. Um, mm -hmm. But most athletes don't have that agency. And, and I think at the end of the day, even those like Kyrie Irving and Aaron Rodgers, who would seem to have as much power as anyone does in the athletic world, um, it's still very difficult to push back against coaches, general managers, and those who have authority over their bodies fundamentally. And also to, I think, to like to dislodge the kind of ideological investment in this notion that you should be playing through pain, right? That you owe it to your teammates to persevere and so forth. And so I think what may be happening on some level is that there's a kind of displacement occurring where this, this desire to achieve more agency, um, especially from, if you think about someone like Kyrie Irving, right, who has been very politically outspoken uh, in ways that I would say are very productive. That desire to achieve more agency, um, it's almost easier in a sense to channel it towards something that's about bodily autonomy, right? So it connects to those issues of physical, mental health, and well-being, like vaccines, this question of choice over what you do to your body, what you put in your body, how you condition your body, right? But in, um, in channeling it towards that question, there's a way in which it doesn't actually threaten the sort of structure of elite sport, right? You're not pushing back against those chains of authority. And I wonder if there is a way in which it's kind of, it's, it's fueling that sentiment for these athletes, right? Like they're, they're kind of, for me, misdirecting um, those feelings of sort of like alienation and exploitation towards something that like, like I think you mentioned myocarditis there. Like at the end of the day, you know, athletes should be worried about myocarditis, but they should be worried about myocarditis caused by COVID, not myocarditis mm. caused by vaccines. Yeah. But like, mm. There's a strange way in which maybe like most of us who don't want to face up to the fact that like this is a current reality that we have to live in, right? There's a way that channeling it all towards things like the vaccine is a way of feeling like you're seizing that agency, mm -hmm. feeling like you're getting a measure of control over yourself. But like capitalism doesn't actually afford us that control. An actual pandemic doesn't afford us that control. The truth is we are out of control. 
Um, and the only meaningful way that we can resist capitalism or a pandemic is collective, right? It's not shrinking back into your own choices around your body. It's about working with other people to, you know, in a, in a more, I think, material sense, achieve the rights you need in order to have an authentic measure of freedom and, and health and well-being. Um, but that's not what we're seeing play out right now. Yeah, just I think that this is it's not an apology for people like Aaron Rodgers spewing their anti-science, anti-vax rhetoric. That's that's not what I'm hearing, nor I think is that the analysis here. But I think that it's not dissimilar to what we're seeing in places like Canada with this freedom convoy in terms of the alienating aspects of capitalism make control or make agency within capitalism very difficult and very, very challenging for many folks. So I'm not apologizing for the folks who are on Capitol Hill honking their horns or anything in, in the middle of downtown Ottawa. But the sociological analysis here, um, or that the, the, the analysis that we will do or that we're currently doing uh, on this is that these folks are lacking in, in some uh, areas of their life or likely are power for individual agency. And here's one place where they can um, project that. Um, and one place that that's actually, as you pointed out, really kind of easy to do it um, in terms of like bodily autonomy. Um, and that I think is not disconnected. Those two movements, and I constantly talk to my students in sociology of sport about how things that happen in sport is, are, are not disconnected from what's happening in the real world. And this mm -hmm. is a perfect example. Like mm -hmm. Aaron Rodgers, the anti-vax movement, and the, the I, think, I think it's actually uh, appropriate to call that a sort of move for agency in certain uh, or an attempt to gain some agency from the alienating work of athletic labor. Many of these people in downtown Ottawa are, are experiencing the same thing. Many people who are anti-vax in general, I think, are experiencing very similar things. The conditions of capitalism have not been beneficial to them, and here is a way in which we can project it. And again, this is not to apologize for those for those people or to say that those people are legitimate or justified. It just, this is capitalism and it works to sustain capitalism. No, but there's rage at the capitalist state. Yes. And the, there's justification for that rage at the capitalist state because it has abandoned people yeah. in very fundamental ways. Yeah. In Canada, are there lockdowns that have some meaningful efficacy with respect to public health? Yes. In the United States, we don't even see that. But, but, the only way in which these sort of lockdowns could be preserving the health and well-being of people in a much more capacious sense is if you provide material support for those yeah. who are being locked down, right? So mm -hmm. people have reason to be upset because they have been abandoned for capitalism, right? I mean, it's, that's why I'm, it's very important to call it the capitalist state. The state is working hand in hand with capital yeah. here yeah. in order to ensure that there's no disruption or minimal disruptions right? To the production of value. And they're more than willing to sacrifice people to those ends. And when they want to break the chain of transmission for a week or two or whatever it is, right? I mean, they're certainly not going to support people. So people feel desperate. They're like, if you don't give me support, obviously I need to go to work, right? Yeah. So if you're stopping me from working and I have nothing else to fall back upon, 
You know, clearly the state in that way is reducing my freedom. They're, they're literally in a direct sense, materially impacting my ability to survive. The state is, they're responsible for that. And they could be doing something different, right? So, I mean, I, I think I, I'm agreeing with you, Derek, that like in all of these ways, people should be absolutely outraged. But for me, yes, ultimately it's a misdirection to just try to wish away the pandemic. That's almost like a magical thinking approach to resolving this issue, right? To, to pretend that the, the causality is based in the government's decisions to lock people down, like as if that's causing the harm in this situation, that's wrong. The harm is being caused by a pandemic that none of us can control. But could we try to put measures in place that protect people, in a, protect their health and protect their material well-being? We absolutely could. And we even saw under Donald Trump, we saw a more meaningful attempt to accomplish those ends at times. I mean, I can't believe I'm saying that, but like people got checks, people got unemployment insurance. And people were locked down at times. Those are the kind of things that are necessary and they continue to be necessary. But of course, the capitalist state, whether it's in Canada, the US or elsewhere, has no interest whatsoever in that. Joanna, did you have any thoughts on this? I don't want, I don't want yeah, to. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I want to make sure that we have time for uh, the other topics, sure. but uh, I think kind of my, and I haven't been, I didn't follow what, what went on in Canada terribly, super close. Um, Mm-hmm. Some things to, to kind of add to this, right? It's sort of like the my knowledge of the anti-vax movement in terms of where it emerged is that it it is more of a, a middle class phenomenon, right? Of like a lot of like middle class women who are sort of wanting to go more eco-friendly and sort of avoid big pharma, which is also a big issue, right? Maybe if big pharma was actually regulated in a way that actually served the needs of, of people and of sick people, then I don't know, maybe people would trust big pharma more, right? So part of it is sort of this historical legacy of big pharma and medical testing um, and how that's being, um, I I think some communities of people have very, very, very legitimate reasons to be very skeptical, whereas others don't quite have the same historical legacy of like medical racism and and scientific experiments and stuff. But then the anti-vax movement, a lot of that is very middle class, like in terms of its origin. Um, A lot of it stems from kind of like the 60s and the 70s and sort of the back to the land movement, um, which I'm not terribly familiar with. But it's my understanding a lot of that comes from, again, like middle class white hippies um, who are sort of who are who some of them who were responding to the capitalist state. Right. So that's part of it is they're they're sort of removing themselves from society um, because they thought that would be. less harmful, but I think the way it sort of morphed. And so, for example, some people that I used to, some influencers I used to follow on Instagram, mine is sort of, they moved to the anti-vax movement as a way to kind of be, you know, green, using green products and being environmentally friendly and all these things. Um, so I think that's where, um, I think that's where the anti-vax movement gets me. I do think there's that part, a huge part of it is the alienation of capitalism, but then it's also this anti-vax movement. Of, of, of largely white women who are sort of trying to like protect their, their and only their babies at all costs. And, um, and, then, and then not to mention, we have uh, people who are actually benefiting from capitalism who are using the anti-vax movement for their own political ends, right? So there's sort of like multiple moving parts. Um, so I guess that's kind of the only thing I would add to the conversation. Yeah, maybe to put, to put a cap on, I, I, I think we're, we're all gesturing to the fact that like, 
these movements themselves are also racialized and gendered and class based. Mm-hmm. And and one of the things that I've been noticing particularly, sorry to bring it back in the, into the Canadian context, but this is what we've been sort of dealing with all week, to bring mm-hmm. it back to this like freedom convoy is like who are who's allowed to speak up and who mm-hmm. uh, who is not policed when they do speak up in 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 terms of forms of protest. Yeah. Um in, in and I'm thinking of the differential treatment that folks on Capitol Hill who are literally like putting all their trucks and in in the downtown core preventing people from moving around and blaring their horns all day incessantly uh, and these are big tractor trailers like their horns are loud people can't live in Ottawa and the police are hands off the the police mm-hmm. state which is a, a, it's part of the capitalist state absolutely the police state hands off but then you've got things like blockades uh for indigenous uh land uh claims and with the Wet'suwet'en people um that the police and RCMP raided uh and these these the differential treatment in terms of who is allowed to protest and when they are allowed to protest it I think that paints a, a, a really bleak picture uh, of um, how far the capitalist state will go to protect certain people or to not condemn certain people. And that's what we're seeing around us. Like the, the anti-vax movement is harming people. It's causing people mm. to die. And yet these people are given platforms. And, and as we mentioned right at the top, like Aaron Rodgers is given whatever platform he wants. Uh, and that's that's harmful. Um, and, and I think that's an important point that, that we should grapple with going forward. And I'm sure it's similar in the States in terms of who is allowed to be protesting these things and mm-hmm. how police respond to anti-vax protests relative to, say, Black Lives Matter um, protests. And and that's a, a point of analysis. But yeah, I, I mean, look how police, look, look, the response to Cap, uh, it's just Kaepernick versus Rogers. It yeah. sums it all yeah. up. I mean, it's, it's yes. exactly what you're saying in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So th- there's a lot that we, we could talk. I think we could talk about COVID all day. We've, we've all got our, our takes on COVID and we've been experiencing the harms of uh, neoliberal capitalism on, um, on everyone. Um, and I think Canada is not far behind the U.S. in that respect. So let's put a cap on that discussion and um, move. It's a not the greatest segue, but um, recently, yesterday, actually, um, Johanna, you were you were quoted in a piece from Athlete Ally um, uh, about uh, Leah Thomas and and trans exclusionary uh, legislation and policies in the NCAA. Um, and and I think I want to talk about that. Um, so so. If you feel comfortable, can you just kind of walk us through um, what is happening in that in that world? Absolutely. There's a lot. Um, I don't know if sort of USA Swimming, I don't know when USA Swimming has ever last received this much attention, maybe in summer 2020. Um, so I'll try to be brief. So um, last fall, um, Leah Thomas, who is a trans female swimmer for University of Pennsylvania, she's been swimming for the women's team all season long and had followed all of the proper protocol, followed all of the rules, submitted all the paperwork, which the more that I'm diving into this, 
trans athletes have to submit so, so much paperwork that cis athletes like myself would never have to do. Um, and I want to make that very clear. Um, this is not just like a trans issue, right? This is really a cisgender issue. And I, um, the, the framing of it, I feel like in a lot of the media is like all about Leah Thomas and that this is a trans issue. And from my perspective, it's really like, from my understanding, it's really a cisgender issue. Um, so last fall at a swim meet, she, uh, won several races by, um, what appeared to be a significant margin and everybody freaked out. Um, and it was just all over the news that she's dominating, she's dominating, she's dominating. Um, she hasn't been dominating since. So the narrative needs to shift about that because she has been defeated. Um, and essentially all of the kind of right wing and not even right wing, like mainstream right crowd within swimming totally bugged out. And um, it's really like a moral panic about cis and trans people is, is what's emerged as a result. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I feel awful for Leah because or for Thomas, because I'm sure she's just being absolutely bombarded with requests and comments and. Does she feel safe right now? I have no idea. You know, all these concerns are kind of going through my head and, and many, I'm sure many, many, many people's heads right now. Um, so there's been so many hit pieces about her. Um, she's tried to speak only sparingly about what's going on, which I totally understand. And for example, like she went on a podcast for Swim Swam, which is a ugh, website that I can't stand because of their just both not even both sidesism, but just their their right leaning uh, presentation of the whole thing. So she went on a podcast to like sort of clarify things, and for like a moment that seemed to kind of qualm, uh, sorry, quell some people's concerns. Um, but then, of course, you know it was never going to be enough, um, and so just hit piece after hit piece came out of it. Um, I mean, of course, like Fox News. Daily Mail, you know, New York Post, all these pieces are coming out. There's like an article about um, an, an article citing an anonymous swimmer on her team saying that people felt threatened. People didn't like that there was a quote unquote male in their locker room. Um, all of these things um, and how like everyone's kind of like terrified by her um, and that the, the person is anonymous because she's afraid of blowback. Um, and fortunately, there's been a couple more pieces that have come out recently uh, by Katie Barnes, ESPN journalist, um, who interviewed several, a couple members of her team who are who um, stated their support of her, um, also cited anonymous sources. Um, so, of course, people on the right are saying, you know, how do we e how can we even trust where this comes from? Because there are no names, et cetera, et cetera. We know ourselves as people who. Um, get quotes from athletes that a lot of athletes don't feel comfortable for many reasons, um, sharing their names and, and speaking, um, you know, on the record using their names. Um, so, you know, we offer anonymity uh, whenever we can to protect their identities, um, their positions, their status in college sports. Um, so what happened, um, because, the, you know, the criticism has been that she's cheating. Um, and so, so many people have been dead naming her and, and, you know, you, not using her pronouns, which is just really ugly and disgusting. Um, so the, the, the mainstream right lobby and the, the right leaning lobby within swimming has been pressuring all kinds of bodies to come up with some kind of statement and get kind of a, respond to what's going on. So the NCAA completely overhauled their policies, uh, which I understand needed to be done anyways, but, um, did it sort of overnight, whereas before they'd taken their time about it. 
And they announced, uh, I think around January 20th or so, basically that they're kicking the can, rather than NCAA have like a blanket policy, that they were going to kick the can to the sports and say that the um, the policy regarding trans athletes, of course, not regarding cisgender athletes, even though it's really a cisgender issue, but that the policy regarding trans athletes were going to be decided sport by sport, which a lot of people have said makes sense because the way that... Um, these things um, manifest in, in athletes differ by sport, from my understanding. Um, and so it, it punted it down to uh, USA Swimming, the national governing body in the U.S. for swimming, um, and also to FINA, which is the international uh, governing body of swimming, which FINA is the one that famously announced the really horrific pseudoscientific racist uh, response last summer to using soul caps. So we cannot trust FINA to be up to date on all these things right. at all. Um, so USA swimming in a rush again, did it again overnight, came out with this policy a couple days ago, uh, I think two days ago, essentially s stating, um, their policies regarding trans athletes. And I really encourage, uh, readers to go to Katie Barnes wrote a piece about this with ESPN. So I, I defer people to that and we'll link it to the show notes. And they essentially laid out multiple things. One is that they differentiated between trans athletes competing at the elite level and the non-elite level. So that essentially trans athletes, they're competing at the quote unquote non-elite level. So basically athletes um, who are not setting records uh, at the 13 to 14 age group and below um, that anyone in this non-elite level was sort of okay and that they, you know, we, we, uh, we approve of inclusion at the non-elite level, but basically as soon as athletes, as trans athletes start winning and start getting good, that's the issue, right? That they're okay with trans athletes competing as long as they're not winning, right? That's the issue. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, so for example, um, at the, um, they have the statement about their inclusion, um, let me see if I can find uh, the quote. Where did it go? Um, oh, at the end of their statement about inclusivity, it says USA Swimming remains steadfast and its continued commitment to greater inclusivity at the non-elite levels, which is total BS. Like, we'll only be inclusive, yeah. again, if you're not winning, um, which I have a lot of thoughts about, um, but I'm, I'm trying to be brief here. Um, <laughs> And for elite level athletes, they set a couple sort of a couple standards that they have to meet. So, for example, um, elite transgender female swimmers um, must maintain a testosterone level below five nanomoles per liter continuously for at least 36 months before competition. And this is effective immediately. So it's not, you know, when this it's not when the short course season ends, which is usually around March and April, depending on um, sort of what meets you go to. It's not in August where most teams take a break. Um, and, um, and also for, for NCAA season swimming, um, the N NCAA championship meet for swimming is usually sometime in February, March. So again, like before NC2As and this whole 36 month thing, I mean, that's three years. That's totally ridiculous. Again, they're trying to say we want to exclude trans female swimmers and say anything about trans male swimmers, but trans female swimmers cannot be at the elite level without actually barring them. And I think that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to forestall any criticism saying, well, you're, bar you're completely barring trans female athletes by saying, well, there's like the sliver of a chance, right, that they could compete. Um, mm -hmm. 
I am not an expert on testosterone levels, so I defer to people that are more expert than me. I do understand that the nanomoles is, I guess, a different measurement from how it's usually kind of quantified by most governing bodies. Uh, but uh, experts have said that this is a far harsher and more strict and more exclusive policy than what you see within the IOC, what you see with many um, international governing bodies. So obviously that's awful. And of course, you know, for trans athletes and states where trans affirming healthcare is banned, like how can you monitor anything if you cannot even get trans affirming healthcare, right? So I, I, I could go on all day about this, but it's really, really awful. Um, and so I was uh, very fortunate that athlete um, Ally reached out to me yesterday to to uh, make a statement on this, um, and 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 we'll we'll post that in the show notes. Uh, one thing that I kind of last thing, I guess two last th- things that I want to say is that one is that we are going to have uh, trans uh, female athlete and uh, sports journalist Carly Chardonnay Webb. We are going to interview her next week. I'm not sure when this current episode is going to come out, but we're going to interview her next week to really dive into a lot of these issues. And we'd already agreed on the interview before USA Swimming announced this policy. Um, so we're really excited to have her on because she is so much more of an expert on this stuff than we are. Um, so listeners, stay tuned for that. Um, and then the other thing that I'll say is that um, I did a, a thread over the weekend, last weekend, um, stating the fact that um, the whole idea that quote-unquote biological males um, are wholeheartedly better than all biological female athletes is total bullshit, um, and citing some of my swimming experiences about how I, I used to beat um, cis, cis male athletes in practice all the time when it came to distance butterfly sets, I would beat um, a guy who had um, who not only went on to swim for um, a power, kind of uh, a top five uh, swimming program at the NCAA level, but also made an Olympic trials cut. And I was not anywhere close to being an Olympic trial swimmer. But what I wanted to say is that um, the backlash uh, from transphobic people was the most backlash that I think I've gotten on pretty much any thread I've done since the Dan Dockett stuff. And I think that's really, really interesting, right? That the transphobic people, and a lot of them are based in the UK. There was a lot of snitch tagging for these enormous counts in the UK uh, where transphobia is a very, very widespread phenomenon. It is in the US too, but it seems to be more virulent um, than it is in the US. Um, So that was like really eye-opening for me. And I I say eye-opening for me because I'm a cisgender person. I'm sure trans people are listening to this. I'm like, oh my God, I knew this already. Joanna's being ridiculous and and shielded by her privilege. And that's absolutely the case. Um, But I just find that really, really something else that all these people who know, like literally are so far from being experts about any of this, right? They feel bold and confident enough and are accusing me of hating women, abusing women, hating women's sports, blah, 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 all this stuff that's not true. Um, and and um, I just found that really illuminating. Um, so I think that's kind of what I have to say about that. So I look, I look forward to any comments that you two have about it. Yeah, a lot of the, a lot of this, like, I, in response to your thread, a lot of the discourse centered around this entirely disingenuous Mm -hmm. notion that folks like Leah Thomas are quote unquote cheating. And I know Nathan, you have some thoughts on that. You tweeted that, uh, or you tweeted about how uh, trans athletes, that, that, that argument is entirely disingenuous. Would you like to share some of those thoughts? Yeah. I mean, I don't have a lot to say because actually for me, it's fairly cut and dry. Um, Mm -hmm. and that is because 
at the end of the day, people want to go so deep into the weeds mm-hmm. on biology and science and whatever else. Um, but like, I want to start from a different premise altogether, which is why do we privilege what happens in sport over the health and well-being of people mm-hmm. and their identities yeah. in a more fundamental sense? Yeah. To me, competitive imperatives in any sporting context are completely irrelevant relative to should we allow a person to live their authentic self or are we going to regulate that person's self, surveil them, subject them often to health-based interventions that are damaging to their health, changing their bodies, hormonally altering and surgically altering their bodies, subjecting them to gender um, verification tests, all of that, right? Why is sport worth that? Mm-hmm. And for me, it's, that's why it's simple. It's not. Sport isn't yeah. worth that. Yeah. Um, and so it's actually positively disgusting to see people um, make these kind of arguments. And I, and I want to be really clear. Johanna was intimating this. These people are going on Fox News. Yeah. yeah. If you're jumping yeah. on, if you're happily yeah. jumping on Fox News to sell yeah. your moral panic, we know who you are. Yeah. You've yeah. revealed we yourself. It's clear as that. day. Clear as yeah. day. You got a fascist project. Um, and we see it. Yeah. So, you know, I don't, I don't want to get into the, the stuff about the biology. I mean, like, look, yeah. LeBron James has a different body than I do, but yeah. we're in the same category. Yeah. We get, I compete against LeBron James, but like, I'll tell you, his skill level, that's one thing. He earned yeah. that. Um, yeah. But the body that he competes in, you know, we didn't choose which bodies we compete in, right? right. And yeah. he has a little bit of an advantage over me when it comes to playing basketball. But like, that's, that's life because we're men, right? And if we're men, we don't care about that. We don't care about those kind of categories. We don't make those kind of distinctions. Yeah. Um, So, you know, let me just say this. This is a feminist project, ostensibly, as you pointed out, Johanna, all kinds of claims about misogyny abound. I just want to say my child, when she heard about this, her point was, why are you saying I'm not as good as the boys? Why are you Mm -hmm. saying that? Why are you saying I can't compete with boys? I'm not worse. Don't tell me I'm worse. Yep. Yeah. So there's your feminist project. Because that's what you're telling yeah. little girls. Yep. Yeah. You can't exactly. compete. Right. No. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. All, it's all premised. It's all premised on this notion, on this, the biggest lie in, in elite sport that, 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 that sport is based on capitalist competition. Mm-hmm. And that that imperative means everything and is center, is central to the entire project of sport. And like, one of the things that that I think we all are in agreement on is like, how about we, and I tweeted this from the show account, how about we reimagine a world where mm-hmm. sport isn't driven like that first? Right. How about we reimagine that possibility that sport shouldn't be driven by capitalist competition? And then maybe we can understand the real corporeal harm that athletes mm-hmm. go through um, and you're pointing out in this particular case, uh, a lot of extreme forms of harm. And how about we reimagine sport as this like fun place? How about that? How about we reimagine sport as not a capitalist imperative and competition being the four and something instead principled around equity, diversity and inclusion? No, instead, we're trying to work to exclude people from sport. And it's the same thing that supports that entire logic supports a neoliberal 
capitalist society. So it's not shocking that sport reifies the status quo across the social system. Sport is the opiate of the masses, if we want to go back to, to Marx. Sport is operating like that. And um, it's masking a lot of the, the harm that, that people who use this rhetoric of cheating, that they are completely ignoring in their, in their completely illegitimate um, takes, personally. But Johan, I, I noticed you wanted to get in there, too. Yeah, no. And, you know, I've gone back and forth about this, you know, like, should I even be debating, discussing some of these finer points? Because like, you both are totally right, right? It, by doing that, it accepts some, some of their premise, right? That these are things that are worth even debating, right? The biology, all these other things. And so I have been sort of thinking of like, how am I potentially like worsening the conversation by being like, there's, here are examples of like, where I used, you know, I used to be guys or whatever. Um, because it's a totally ridiculous premise. Um, and am I sort of giving them some leverage? I don't know. Um, because you're right, like at the end of the day, like sports don't matter when it comes to like actually saving people's lives and allowing them to be full humans. And um, and I've said this a lot on Twitter, but like the only, as far as I know, the only um, U.S. Olympic swimmer who has come out in support is um, uh, Jacob Peebley. And he did this on Instagram a few weeks ago. And like he said in one of his last stories, which I've screenshotted, that says like, why are we normalizing discrimination and why does competition matter here? Um, which I found to be like pretty profound that he was like willing to say that considering many of uh, other Olympians, famously the Duluth sisters, not to mention many other ones within the swimming world have come out very uh, openly with their transphobia. Um, then the last thing I wanted to say, you know, to go back to the fact that all bodies are made differently. Uh, Nathan, you brought up the LeBron James example within swimming, like Michael Phelps is the, is the example, right? He is the great white hope that we in the swimming world wanted. We're excited about that it would bring more people into the sport of swimming and show that it was also an acceptable sport for men. Um, that's the other thing, right? That even though swimming, quote unquote, isn't as sort of like masculine, supposedly as like other sports, like football and basketball, and sort of he was going to bring all these people because of his enormous success. But like, again, you know, he has so many advantages naturally to his body that many other male swimmers, many other swimmers all across the gender spectrum do not have, right? So all of that just falls away. And he famously came out and, and said that he's not a fan of cheating. And he essentially likened what Thomas is doing to doping, uh, which is total fucking bullshit and just totally enraging. And he has this Michael Phelps Foundation for Mental Health. Right. And, and which just goes to show how utterly disgusting and ridiculous. And again, that the neoliberal use of mental health, which goes back to, um, oh, I'm blanking on his name, the U.S. Olympic summer who was in the January 6th, Cleet Keller, right, also citing mental health concerns. And again, this whole use of sort of mental health um, and um, it's just it's just really disgusting. Um, I'm not at all hopeful that the swimming community is supporting her in the way that she needs. I know that they're not. Um, I see it everywhere. It's it's on you know all the transphobia on Twitter, on Instagram, you know swim swam, um, swimming world, all of these outlets that are posting all this horrific stuff. Um, and you know, um, so basically, all all trans um, athletes um, know now that swimming is not a sport for them. Um, even though swimming is the only sport that actually is a, like, can, can address a public health crisis, right? That it can actually mean the difference between life and death, right? So this whole, like, 
um, you know, Nathan's well-founded argument that sort of like, why are we placing this competitive imperative over humanity? Like with swimming, it's even more so than a lot of different sports because actually learning how to swim saves saves lives. Um, So like I said, I could go on all day, um, but I think I'll kind of end it there. Yeah, I think Nathan perhaps put it back best when he when he said that when folks defending a particular position end up on Fox News defending that particular position, mm-hmm. they lose quite a bit of legitimacy. Um, and I think that's right. the, that's that's a, a really poignant um, and important point here. Um, and also, mm-hmm. yeah, the 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 premise. The premise is so illegitimate that even engaging in these debates of examples between different body types actually feeds yeah. that narrative. I think. I think we're all in agreement that it actually feeds mm. those those um, folks. So so perhaps um, we we can deal a little bit, uh, or or we can have these conversations in a little bit of a different way going forward. I think it is important because these spaces are exclusionary and they're exclusionary mm. by design. Um, that's right. And it's a moral panic. This is what we were saying. I mean, mm-hmm, we, yeah. mm-hmm. this is why Fox News is picking up on it, right? Because from mm-hmm. Fox News' standpoint, like it it wins them points in particular political yeah. ways. And that's mm-hmm. why they want to inflate it into something that's different than a lot of these people who are more like ensconced in the sports world and are pushing that argument. They like they have a different yeah. agenda, right? But it aligns mm-hmm. with Fox News, who's pushing a moral panic. And with any moral panic, aka CRT in the United States, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. There's no point in getting to the into the weeds on it because it's not actually about what it claims to be about. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It yeah. claims to be about fairness in sport or it claims to be about the education of kids. But at the end of the day, what the real purpose is, it, CR, the CRT crisis is about destroying public schools. It's about destroying public education. And it's about um, buttressing white supremacy. That's, that's all there is. So there's no point in debating whether or not that's a correct reading of critical race theory, right? Because actually, you've accepted the premise immediately yeah. by going down that line. And it's the same thing here, right? We're yeah. accepting the premise yeah. that trans people don't, get to, don't deserve to be treated as human beings who are able to live their own mm-hmm. gender identity. Yeah. We, instead, we have to litigate whether they're allowed to do that. And as soon as we're litigating whether they're allowed to do that, right, right then we're fundamentally dehumanizing them. And so right. like, I, I think that we need to be viewing it in those terms. Um, but let's, let's shift now to, because we don't have a lot of time left, and um, an issue that like, a lot of people in the sports world are thinking about right now uh, is what's happening in the NFL with the disclosures of Brian Flores about um, the fact that in his, I mean, so as, as a groundwork, we know that in the NFL, I mean, it's, it's actually very clear and has been clear for a long time that there is profound discrimination in the hiring of coaches in the NFL, uh, which is to say that like, black coaches simply will not be hired. There's, there's literally a rule in effect that imposes interviews on teams so that teams must interview minority candidates. And yet, despite the existence of that, that rule, um, it has almost no material impact on the hiring practices. And what we see instead is the constant tokenistic interviewing of these candidates, which is absurd because if you know, in a lot of these lines of work, the interview process is exceptionally arduous. Um, so actually to give someone an interview that they're not being seriously considered for is really exploitative. It's yeah. demanding a massive amount of labor for nothing just so that you can score representational points in terms of making claims about how you are satisfying diversity goals, right? So it's, it's pretty sick to do that in the first place. And what he was able to reveal is like he had proof that it was ha- We knew it was happening, right? Because you just can t- look at the hiring practices. They're only hiring yeah. white people. 
So obviously yeah. they're they're not actually taking black candidates seriously. But like mm-hmm. he got from the most prominent coach in the entire NFL, Bill Belichick, texted him to say, thinking that he was someone else also named mm-hmm. Brian. Um, texted him that, yeah, good news. You've already been hired. And the only little catch was that he hadn't received his interview yet. He hadn't been interviewed mm-hmm. yet. He had an interview scheduled on the books and the team had already decided who they were hiring before they interviewed him, right? So it was like smoke and gun that it was a tokenistic interview. And that has led to, uh, you know, mm-hmm. for, this is just for those who haven't been following closely. Um, this has led to widespread discussion about these racist practices. And, you know, I, I have a mm-hmm. couple comments about this. One, let's be clear, like, this is racism. It's disgusting racism. The NFL is racist from top to bottom. Um, and this is a league that is 50, currently 57.5% of players are black. So yeah. if this is how they're treating coaches, right, how are players mm-hmm. being treated? And also, mm-hmm. who is coaching players? right? Mm-hmm. Like they're literally trying to choose the people that are going to repl- replicate, reproduce the same kind of racist ideology. Those are exactly the people being empowered to run teams, sacrifice bodies and produce, um, produce value for the NFL. So like yeah. every, the league is just saturated in racism, the concussion settlement, race norming and the concussion settlement, like literally the concussion settlement race norming policy said black people are less intelligent than white people. Therefore, like when their results say, when they, when they have results that suggest that like they've had, they're, they're having trouble hitting certain baselines in terms of their scoring after concussions, that's not because they had a concussion. It's because they're black and therefore less intelligent. And therefore we can assume that they will score lower. I mean, this is like the most fundamental form of racism imaginable, right? Like this is just black mm-hmm. people are not people in the same way white people are people. Okay. And that's the NFL. So you know, there's, on one level, there isn't much to be said about that. It's just like racism. Um, for me, I have to say that like this, that the coaching piece is not my top priority um, because at the end of the day, I also want to acknowledge, right? Like coaches are overseers. Coaches are managing the sacrifice of mm. athletes' bodies and being paid for it. Um, that's what football coaching is. And I don't want to make football coaches the centerpiece of any campaign for racial justice. It's the same way that you say, well, the head of the U.S. military is now black or the head of the CIA is now black. Like these are things that are causing such unimaginable amounts of harm. I don't really care who gets to do the job of causing that harm. Right. That, that's, mm-hmm. not the, that's not the vanishing point of any racial justice struggle that I'm going to be like deeply invested in. But it is representative of how fundamental the racism is in the NFL and the harm that is being experienced by the people that are really bearing it, which is the players, right? And think about what this means on the college level, right? And we have evidence of this at the University of Iowa, for instance, which has been investigated for racism. We know that the University of Iowa had profoundly racist practices. They had to to develop um, a... uh, a diversity committee, a diversity inclusion committee comprised of former players, former black players to help hold the program accountable. And the coach, upon getting a contract extension, just cut the committee. He just folded the committee up. Um, And partly because, and this was disclosed by David Porter, a member of that committee, you know, he didn't like what the committee was saying about prioritizing racial justice over what was actually happening on that campus. And so he just shut the committee down, right? So that's what we're seeing happening across football. And that to me is the really core problem, the fundamental plantation dynamics of football in the college and professional ranks. And this is sort of the, I think the tip of the iceberg of that. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, I urge our listeners to go check out um, the Black Athlete podcast. They just released an episode on the Flores thing. And I think it's a really nuanced take and touches mm-hmm. on some of the things that Nathan's touching on here. And I do think it's important to to recognize and reconcile with, with the fact that some of this is arguing over who gets to be overseer in a plantation yeah. dynamic. And I think that is an important take. I absolutely think that's an important take. Yeah. Uh, and, and I uh, urge folks to, yeah, go ahead. Oh, and uh, shout out to Lou Moore, um, prior yes. end of sport guest, who is, is one of the hosts of the athlete, Black Athlete Podcast and whose uh, public work was cited in the lawsuit. Um, so again, like showing that, that our public work actually matters and has a difference. Sorry, Derek, you can keep going. For for listener, we we did have a, a number of things we wanted to get to today. We wanted to touch on the Rocky Wirtz uh, Chicago NHL franchise stuff, um, and we also wanted to talk on the UCLA stuff. But instead, mm-hmm. I urge folks to check out First and Pen. Um, Letitia Brown, mm-hmm. who's a former guest, wrote a brilliant piece on the UCLA stuff, and I urge our listeners mm-hmm. to check that out. But we'll we'll wrap up this catch up episode here um and thank you for listening please like share subscribe to the podcast leave a review on apple on google whatever podcasting app you use that always helps keep away the trolls that ultimately love to to surround us at various stages uh, of uh, this podcast so thank you for listening thank you for being a fan of the show reach out to us on twitter at end of sport pod or any of our individual accounts and thank you so much for listening